Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I am Keith Whittington, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist uh, individual professors whose rights to free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by a colleague from a sister organization concerned with the fight for free speech on college campuses, the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors. As many of you will know, the AAUP was founded over a century ago to advance academic freedom in American higher education. Across its storied history, it has had a dramatic impact in establishing the principles of academic freedom in the United States and persuading universities to put in place procedural protections like faculty tenure to help insulate scholars and teachers from outside pressures. I'm pleased to be joined by Henry Hank Reichman, who is Professor Emeritus of History at California State University, East Bay. He is the former Vice President of the AAUP and recently completed nearly a decade of service as the Chair of the AAUP's Committee A on Academic Freedom and Tenure. Hank is also the author of the newly published book from Johns Hopkins University Press, Understanding Academic Freedom, I'll add as well that his 2019 book, The Future of Academic Freedom, uh, won the Eli M. Opeler Memorial Award from the American Library Association. Hank, welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Um, before diving into uh, the substantive issues, I thought I'd start with a bit about your own involvement in the fight for academic freedom. How'd you get drawn into these issues and working with the AAUP? Well, I first... Uh got interested in issues of academic freedom and free speech through the American Library Association. Uh, back in the uh, late 1970s, uh, I was like many PhDs unemployed and uh, uh, answered an ad to become the assistant director of their Office for Intellectual Freedom about which I knew almost nothing. Uh, and to my actual surprise, there, the director at the time, uh, Judith Krug, who is uh, uh, sadly deceased, but was a legend in free speech circles, um, uh, we hit it off and she hired me. Uh, I stayed there for a, a full academic year before going off to the Soviet Union to, to conduct historical research, but uh, maintained my connection as the associate editor of their uh, newsletter on academic freedom, which I uh, a position I kept till 2015. Mm. Uh, and so when uh, I got involved in campus politics as uh, I was chair of our academic Senate and on the CSU system academic Senate and very much involved with the California Faculty Association, our faculty union, um, I sort of started carving out a kind of special area of, of expertise and interest in academic freedom issues. and. Then when I got involved in the AUP on a national level, I was elected uh, first vice president. And for political reasons that need not concern us, uh, the president who I was elected with turned to me and, and, and 
asked me on the recommendation of several other people if I would also chair committee A, which I was kind of in awe of because uh, I actually think I was the first person in the history of, uh, of committee A uh, who chaired it, but did not come from a major elite uh, university or, or selective liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, and it turned out to be a, a great fit for me. Uh, and I think the greatest experience of my academic career. Yeah, not all listeners are likely to be familiar with what exactly Committee A does and how it works. Can you explain some about the work of this uh, really important committee? Well, it's, it's a policy committee and it uh, basically does two things. One, it, um, it, creates usually through subcommittees, et cetera, various policy statements that the AUP has issued. They're all collected in the uh, so-called red book of AUP um, policies and reports. Uh, many of them are collected there. Uh, sometimes they're very short and timely. Sometimes they're longer and meant to last for a while. Um, it also, uh, it does not authorize investigations of academic freedom violations. Those are done by the staff and ultimately executive director. Uh, but when an investigating committee is, is appointed, uh, which sometimes may include members from the committee A, it, report, it submits its report to the committee. The committee then takes possession of the report may endorse its findings, uh, may almost always endorses its findings. Um, although very famously back in the 1960s, there was a big case where they issued a partial report that was endorsed by the committee, a partial report that only came from the investigating committee. But, um, and, and then the committee then may recommend originally to the membership meeting, now to the council of the AUP, whether or not to place the institution that was investigated on the list of institutions censured for violations of academic freedom. So those are the two main uh, functions it plays. It also serves to some degree as a sounding board on academic freedom issues for the staff uh, and for the uh, other leadership of the association. But the association, unlike the Academic Freedom Alliance, the association's purpose is not solely uh, to defend academic freedom. It has become very, very closely identified with it. Uh, but it's really to defend all the professional values of the profession as a whole, um, shared governance, uh, and ultimately, of course, some of our chapters are actually have become unions. In the 1970s, the AUP embraced unionization as one strategy uh, to support um, professional rights for faculty members. So, um, so that's basically what Committee A does. Yeah, I do want to circle back actually shared governance at the uh, end, but um, but you've also been on several um, investigative uh, committees uh, as well and in investigating uh, particular universities for particular um, uh, issues that have arisen uh, arisen there. Um, how have you found that work of, of uh, going to universities and doing the investigations? It's fascinating. It's really one of the most interesting things. The first investigation I served on was arguably the most controversial and biggest academic freedom, individual academic freedom case of uh, probably the past 20 years. Uh, and that was the Stephen Salida case at the University of Illinois. For listeners who don't know, he was a, a, 
a faculty member hired to a tenured full professorship at the University of Illinois. Uh, he is of Palestinian background and he was hired into indigenous studies. And shortly before he was scheduled to show up on campus, he had literally sold his home where he was, uh, made arrangements to move. He was packing his bags literally when a series of tweets he made about the Israeli incursion into um, Gaza at the time uh, went viral and the board of trustees with the support of the campus chancellor withdrew the offer of appointment on the argument that it hadn't yet been formally appointed approved by the board. Of course, what is, was normal at the institution is that board approval often came like six months after the person had already started work, you know, which is an untenable thing, of course. Uh, not uncommon. I mean, it's it's a it's yeah, a process it, a lot of universities use. Right, if it's thought yeah. of as a formality, but right. you know, run into it. But, and in fact, well, anyway. So, um, and and we felt we had to investigate, and we had to do it quickly because it was really roiling the whole profession. There were all sorts of things going on, and uh, and originally there is a, a academic freedom committee on that campus that uh, investigated it. Um, and we had hoped that, that we could actually just simply endorse their report or supplement it. As it turned out, their report, there were a lot of, there were too many caveats. We'd have to say, well, no, we don't agree with this, et cetera. And believe it or not, the leadership of the institution, the chancellor demanded that we come and do our own investigation. Oh. So we, we appointed, a, it was an unusual committee because uh, all three members of the committee were members of committee A at the time. Uh -huh. uh, it was myself, uh, Joan Wallach-Scott, a former chair of the committee, uh, and Hans-Jörg Tita, who is now uh, the director of research on the AUP staff, but was then a professor at another institution in Illinois. Uh, and it was a fascinating visit. And we wrote up our report. Uh, it was a great experience writing it. Uh, the second uh, investigation I was on was at the University of Missouri. And you may recall, this was in the wake of the Ferguson uh, events when uh, black students at the University of Missouri had, were protesting racism on the campus. Uh, the leaders of the administration ended up resigning. Um, and then there was a, a moment on, the, on one of the quads when the, the, the black students were meeting under a tent, but it's a public area. Uh, to figure out their, what they were going to say to the press. And sympathetic faculty were surrounding them. And one person, a student who was claiming to be a journalist, you know, how much of a journalist is debatable, uh, wanted to come in and get break through their line. And a, a, a faculty member, a, a young woman who was about five feet tall, who was like, tried to physically stop him. Um, and called for muscle to help her. And uh, it looked bad. She immediately apologized, said she had been wrong, it was, et cetera. And had it been left to the campus, it is possible she was coming up for tenure. Her, she just would have had her tenure denied. Um, and it would have been hard to claim an academic freedom because her colleagues were not very happy with some of the things she'd done also. But uh, the the legislature got involved and the board of trustees got involved and she was basically railroaded out of her position. So we went to investigate. 
Uh, and that was also a fascinating experience. The most fascinating part, perhaps, was that we did it under duress because the AUP received threats against our lives. Hmm. Uh, anonymous phone call came into the office that said, if you professors show up in Columbia, Missouri, be prepared to bring your own body bags. We didn't take it too seriously, right. uh, but we had to take it somewhat seriously. And, and in fact, we the, the investigating team uh, checked into the hotel in Columbia under assumed names. And to show something about a, an organization of professors, one of our staff members who made the hotel arrangements under these phony names <laughs> registered me as Evelyn Waugh. <laughs> the famous English writer. And of course, most people don't know that Evelyn Waugh was a man. Right. Um, she did, but uh, the desk clerk <laughs> at the hotel <laughs> did not. And you should have seen her eyes when she sees me. I mean, <laughs> Evelyn Waugh. But that was a great, great. And then, of course, I more recently, I served as one member of this special investigation. We did not have to be done remotely through Zoom of several institutions. Uh, it was a governance, not an academic freedom investigation. The report went to our committee on government, not to committee A, uh, about COVID-19 in academic government. And I've just been appointed to uh, uh, be a member of a new special investigation at the University of North, the University of North Carolina system around a, a whole series of challenges to academic freedom there. The most famous, of course, being the failure to uh, give tenure uh, to Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, the uh, main force behind the New York Times 1619 project. Uh, but there are other issues as well. And, and, and that's, we're calling that a special investigation. It's unclear whether there will be any recommendation about governance or academic freedom. It's analogous to a special investigation that was conducted by the AUP in the 1960s. Uh, I believe it's 1965 uh, into the University of Mississippi system hmm. uh, at, where the, the, the battle over desegregation uh, had many academic freedom implications for that system. Um, your new book, um, Understanding Academic Freedom, provides a brief introduction to the contours of academic freedom in the United States. Um, and I should say anyone looking to familiarize themselves with these principles would really benefit from it starting from the book, which is um, uh, short and accessible and, and quite good um, at, at overviewing these, these uh, kinds of complications and, and brings in to bear uh, not only sort of these abstract principles, but lots of individual um, cases um, to give some uh, concrete uh, context to thinking about these problems. Um, but let's start with the basics. Um, so in a nutshell, what is academic freedom and why does it matter? Well, um, the definition I, I think I give of academic freedom in the book, I probably should get up a quote, but um, is that essentially it is the, it, it's not, well, first of all, let me start with what it's not. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who think, and, and for a long time, this is the common sense view, as somebody recently put it, uh, in, in much of the profession, that academic freedom is just an extension of free speech. It's just the right of, it's the application of free speech to, to the academy. And there's some element of truth to that, particularly with regard to what I'll get to in a moment, we often call the extramural expression of faculty members there. Their speech is citizens. Um, but, uh, and it's also 
if you want to talk about student academic freedom, that's really very close to that. But academic freedom is not the same thing. And, and, and you can think about it immediately. If academic freedom is about teaching and research, well, faculty members are not free to speak whatever is in their mind in the classroom as teachers. They have to teach the subject they're assigned to teach, and they can't teach crackpot theories that have been discredited about that subject. Uh, within research, yes, they can write what they wish, but their colleagues don't necessarily have to accept it. <laughs> you can't just say, well, I wrote a book, so I should get tenure. When your colleague said, yes, you wrote a book, but it's a terrible book. We don't right. agree with it. We think it's very bad scholarship. So uh, academic freedom is essentially, the way I think we should look at it is the collective freedom of the faculty to govern itself free of external interference by politicians, the state, by boards of trustees, and even by administrations that it's the right to judge what is good teaching, what is acceptable in the classroom, what is good research, what is acceptable in research, should be a right of the faculty collectively. Now, there is a problem there, and is always going to be a tension, that uh, faculty members, like all other human beings, can be conformist, can go with what you know, where the, as some wag once put it, the herd of independent minds leads us. And, and this is a problem. But hopefully, if enough faculty members are, uh, are, protect, are, uh, are protected by policies that defend academic freedom, and ultimately, I would say the tenure system, and one of the arguments of my book, by the way, is that the erosion of the tenure system and the growth of contingent non-tenure track hiring is in fact the biggest single threat to academic freedom today um, because it empowers all the other threats. Uh, but if the faculty, if there are enough such faculty and they take their role seriously, and this is where, you know, you always hear, uh, Without freedom, if freedom entails responsibility. And sometimes it makes it sound like, you know, yes, you have the freedom, you have academic freedom, but you have the responsibility to not really use it. You know, don't say anything really controversial, you know. Well, it does entail responsibility, but I think a different sort of responsibility. And that is the responsibility to take academic freedom seriously, mm -hmm. to consider alternate views, and to take your responsibilities to govern the academy in accord with the principles of our profession, which include academic freedom, but include many other things as well, seriously. Right. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, is that I wanted to give people a, a simple, basic way to learn these things so that they can be responsible academic citizens. Right. Um, uh, so maybe we should actually say something about um, uh, who, who gets academic freedom in this context. There's a lot of people on college campuses. Um, you mentioned the idea of student academic freedom a while ago. There's also, of course, lots of visiting researchers and scholars and visiting uh, professors, uh, graduate students who teach classes, adjuncts um, who teach classes, et cetera. Um, uh, sometimes I, I hear people uh, talk about academic freedom as being limited um, to tenured faculty. Um, uh, 
so uh, which which is not correct. Um, uh, so uh, can you say then sort of who who falls within the scope of academic freedom? How should we think about sort of who who qualifies and and who's in the, who's uh, within the uh, set that that this makes sense to apply to? Well, putting putting aside for the moment the question of of, of what is sometimes called student academic freedom, which I think is a bit of a misnomer, but yep. you know whatever. Um, uh, putting that aside. The position of the AEP, I think it's the correct position, has always has been that all those who teach and conduct research in higher education are entitled to academic freedom, period. And we've actually, if just a few years ago, added a footnote to our recommended institutional regulations that basically says there should be no invidious distinctions based upon full or part-time tenure track or non-tenure track, et, et cetera, as long as you, you and even that's true of graduate students. Now, graduate students are students, and insofar right. as they're, students, they're, you know, yes, they're they're a pre they're learning the profession. So why should they have all the rights of a full grown professional? That's true. But once they're assigned to teach a class, insofar as they are given responsibility for that class or to conduct research for which they have specific responsibilities, then they should be entitled in that work to all the protections of academic freedom. Now, having said all this, of course, the level of protection that can be offered yeah. to different people on campus for their academic freedom is not quite the same. You know, a tenured faculty member who has been there has proven through his or her practice as a teacher and a scholar, you know, depending upon what their work assignment is, I mean, a teaching institution, it may be all teaching, right. and a research institution, much greater research, may be all research, um, but have proven themselves over time to be, then they are entitled to the fullest protection, which is tenure, which is simply, it's not a status, it's not like, you know, an endowed chair, it's just simply that you've been here long enough and now the only way you can be removed from your position is for cause, and we leave it to individual institutions to figure out what cause is, although there are some things that are illegitimate causes, you know, things that would violate academic freedom, right. but you know, uh, you didn't show up, right. <laughs> you know, whatever, you, you know, you, uh, uh, you sexually harassed a student. I mean, there's right. also, um, but uh, for cause, on the basis of due process provided by a jury of your peers. You know, how that works out in individual campuses may always may differ. And our position has been that anyone who is taught full-time for seven years or the equivalent in part-time has that or should have it, irrespective of whether the university itself and its own policies calls it. So if we have somebody who has a full-time uh, teaching position on one-year contracts who's been there for 20 years, as far as we're concerned, they should have all the rights of tenure. Now, right. whether we can enforce that right. is another matter. Right, right. We try. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, um, so as you know, there are multiple components of what we uh, usually characterize as academic freedom. 1940 AUP report um, uh, lays out three um, core uh, principles of academic freedom. And I sort of want to walk through um, each one yeah. and unpack them a little bit. Um, so the first of these um, we think of is the freedom to engage in research um, and publish uh, scholarly uh, results. Um, so what does that entail? 
uh, when we talk about the freedom to engage in research and publish our sort of correct yeah. one little thing that, that you said that almost yeah. everybody does and i've done it myself is you said the aup's 1940 statement i think right. it's important to note that that 1940 statement was a joint statement of the AUP and the Association of American Colleges, now the Association yes. of American Colleges and Universities. And I, I emphasize that because from the vantage point of the AUP and the AAC, I assume as well, it was something of a compromise. Uh, it is, but that compromise, that jointness is what has allowed it to be so broadly accepted over approaching 300 scholarly organizations, you know, interdisciplinary groups, et cetera, have endorsed it. You find it in collective bargaining agreements, in faculty handbooks, uh, in university policy statements. Uh, in fact, I just just drafted for my, old, my own university. I'm emeritus, but they brought me back for this. Uh, we, don't, we haven't had an explicit academic freedom policy and we're getting a new one. And uh, you know, I drafted it and put right in there that we endorse that statement. So. No, it's yeah, a very important footnote because you're right. I think of it as the AUP statement, but well, it's, um, no, of course. <laughs> but, but but that joint element is is critically important because it's also, as you say, it's been extraordinarily successful in being integrated into university governing documents, and and that um, origin story is part of how it became so successful um, right. and why it was so widely adopted. So anyway, what? But to, turning to research. Um, I think the first thing to understand is, is the interesting thing is, is back in 1915, the first uh, AUP statement, actually, I think it's in the 1940 statement. It's only, the only place it's referred to as full freedom in research. Research, well, on one level, that's true. On the other hand, we don't have full freedom in research. You know, all our research is always judged. You know, it isn't a matter of academic freedom. If somebody calls the AUP and says, my academic freedom has been denied. You know, go why? Well, I wrote this article. Nobody's going to publish it. Right. You know, right. well, maybe because it didn't pass on what we call peer review. So the first thing to understand is that, you know, the freedom to conduct, conduct what research ever you want is not the freedom to have it published, to have it accepted by your colleagues, etc. The main point to make about freedom in research is that it is only the qualified scholarly community that should have the right and power to judge whether research is worthy of whatever it is. Um, and so, so that's the first principle there. And there are a number of different ways that is often challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, donors can demand that, you know, I will donate to this research project, but only if you get the results I want. Legislators may, may demand a certain result. Uh, universities in some places may, may say that, you know, well, we don't want you to publish this because it's going to look bad for us. Um, it, here's an interesting example, in my mind, of, of research is Eva von Heerden was a researcher at uh, Louisiana State University. Uh, he was a hydrologist and he studied the levees, et cetera, in uh, the, you know, Louisiana. He was not on the tenure track. He was, he was a research only appointment with I think multiple year contracts. And he got lots of grants and the university loved him for it. But then after Hurricane Katrina, it, he came to the research conclusion that the Army Corps of Engineers shoddy work 
whatever, had created much of the damage. The Army Corps of Engineers didn't like that. Right. And they pressured the university and the university didn't like that. And Hearden's contract was not renewed. Now, had he been tenured, it might have been a little more difficult, but it was still a violation of his academic freedom and research. He was punished for the conclusions that he made as a scholar. Right. Uh, Whether those conclusions are correct or not, I don't know. Other scholars, other hydrologists might disagree. Who knows? Uh, I'm an historian, not a hydrologist. What do I know? (laughs) But the, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that was part of an AUP investigation. We, 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 uh, and LSU remains on our, for the multiple violations, I hate to say, but remains on our list of censured institutions. Hearden, by the way, sued and actually won a considerable financial settlement. But that, that, that's a kind of example of, of things. And, and uh, of course, um, just in today's news, uh, we have this um, yeah. incident at Yale where a major donation from years ago for a very prestigious program, uh, the donors who for years had been fine with everything going on, suddenly didn't like some things that were happening because the political atmosphere and environment has changed uh, and uh, made demands of the faculty in the program uh, and then discovered, of course, that in an agreement many years ago, there was supposed to be an advisory board. uh, It was never appointed. They never objected before. Now they wanted an advisory board. And when the university according to the faculty member leading the, the program, uh, packed the advisory board with people all of one particular point of view, um, she resigned. Right. Uh, it's in the New York Times today. For, uh, but uh, uh, And so I'm sure it's very complicated. I, we haven't investigated it. I certainly haven't beyond what I read in the newspaper. But I think these are the potential dangers that research faces. Finally, oh, Two other things are the role of the federal government. Uh, One is that's, I think, a very concerning challenge to research, particularly in the sciences now, is what's been called the China Initiative, which began formally under the the, the Trump administration, but it really dates back to previous administrations of both parties uh, and is being, as for all I know, continued by the Biden administration, which is the legitimate concern of the government of Chinese espionage, uh, stealing of intellectual property, secrets of scientific secrets, et cetera, like that, is being abused in many ways to go after uh, Chinese scientists or, or scientists of Chinese descent who are American citizens, uh, working in, but chi- also Chinese scientists working in the United States. Uh, and, and there are a number of very outstanding cases. And, and many of them, the, the Department of Justice has brought charges They've been people have been dismissed and fired from their universities, and then when the case comes to trial, uh, the case collapses. Um, so uh, that's one kind of threat to research. Yeah. Uh, another area that's more complicated is, you know, we've adopted the, syst- the system of institutional review boards mm-hmm. for the legitimate good reason. Uh, that uh, there's been abuse of the, the famous Tuskegee experiment, which I think many people know about, when a number of African American, poor African Americans in the South were allowed to have their syphilis go untreated while they were studied in, to the effects of the disease, when perfectly could have been cured. Uh, and so now, 
if you use human subjects, you have to usually go through one of these boards and there are government regulations. And there have been a lot of complaints that this is pre-publication review. This is basically a restraint on academic freedom. And when it has been applied to the social science, it is sometimes that seems to be a good case. Moreover, there are problems with it's supposed to be peer review. Uh, it's government criteria established, but peer scientific peers are supposed to do it. But very frequently, particularly at bigger universities, it's now being outsourced or it's being bureaucratized. Uh, and so there's lots of opportunities critics charge that um, IRBs can be used not for the legitimate reasons, but be, if, if, a, if a research project is going to look bad to potential donors, to the to legislators, to a board, et cetera, uh, then it can be, be challenged. And of course, uh, this is especially problematic in the social sciences. So uh, uh, that's an area I think where it's contested right now. I don't think anybody thinks we should have, well, there are some people, but any serious advocate of academic freedom believes we should just throw the whole system out. But there are some real issues where we're at the border yeah, certainly uh, some complications relating to IRB and how it plays out. Um, um, uh, you know, including, as you say, sort of the suggestion of, of uh, the role of, 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 of outside actors or administrators who, um, uh, entering into the process and thinking about sort of university risk management concerns uh, rather than necessarily thinking about um, the safety of the investigation as, as such. Um, although one of the points of tension that IRBs create, especially as they extend into social sciences, is the is the interdisciplinary nature of these review boards. And so um, you have uh, even laying aside the problem of do you have outside actors or do you have uh, administrators serving on IRBs, um, you certainly wind up with uh, faculty from a lot of different disciplines, and then you wind up with some potential tensions where you have somebody from the natural sciences, for example, reviewing um, investigations being conducted by somebody in anthropology, um, uh, for example, and there's all kinds of, of cult, uh, culture conflicts uh, between these different disciplines. How should we think about that aspect, which is not unique to the IRB context of, of what counts as a jury of your peers when we're thinking about um, uh, academics reviewing other academics and how they uh, conduct their business? No, I, I think that's an excellent point. And, and I think um, even out, as you're right, even outside IRBs, when we, we say there has to be a faculty review body, it, right. it, you know, ideally it's a qualified faculty review body, you know, and the qualifications are different sorts of issues, you know, vary from different kinds of issues. If it's about research issues that are truly in the discipline, then, you know, what do I as an historian know, as I said, about hydrology? What are, you know, what does the hydrologist know about Russian history? I, this is, um, uh, you know, it is, it is a concern. But if it's, say, an, an issue where a faculty member spoke out about a broad university policy, well, then, yeah, it's fine uh, to have people from all sorts of disciplines. And I think Part of this is a question of uh, the obligation of faculty members uh, to take governance seriously, uh, and to you know, and a, a lot of these things, you know, you can you can set up rules, you can set up policies, but ultimately, human beings implement them, and faculty members are, of course, human beings too. Right. Right. Um, um... 
So there's a lot to explore in, in the research area, but I guess I should just ask one more question and move on to, to some of the other components of academic freedom as well. But the, but the additional point that you hadn't mentioned before that I want to raise with you and get your thoughts on is sort of this growing phenomenon, uh, which also ripped from today's headlines to some degree, um, of organized demands for um, scholarly journals to retract published articles or for conferences to disinvite uh, speakers um, who have um, uh, are coming to present um, their scholarly research in a scholarly context, not because of scholarly fraud uh, type concerns, but because of substantive disagreements uh, with the kinds of arguments uh, presented or the analysis or the results um, of the research. How should we think about those kinds of incidents from an academic freedom uh, perspective? Well, I think it, it can be complicated, but ultimately I think that I quoted somebody, a Canadian scholar in my book who said, they were talking about petition campaigns, you right. know, where petitions to, uh, you know, to disavow some article or some piece of research. And, and he said, petitions aren't peer review. Right. You know, uh, if an article is published and most people in the profession think it's wrong, then criticize it by all means, you know. Uh, and if a journal persists in publishing articles of, of, of poor quality, or then that, that reflects upon the, the journal. Um, it's a little more complicated, I think, sometimes with some of the controversies over who can present at conferences. Um, you don't want political or ideological litmus tests for conferences. On the other hand, you know, conference organizers need to take seriously what is a legitimate position within the profession? You know, and when does, has somebody stepped outside the bounds of that? Um, and I know there is a tendency uh, to just accept everything. <laughs> I know this uh, a conference I go to, it's my favorite conference. It's the Association of the Slavic East European and Eurasian Studies. And that has grown over the years. And I don't think they've turned down anything. Right. Um, because it's the only way most faculty can get to go to the conference is right. to get some sort, even if it's just partial funding from their institution, they have to be on the program. So right, right. one and particularly younger scholars, et cetera. But at some point we need to sort of understand that it is our obligation in all academic activities to enforce disciplinary standards with the understanding that those standards themselves are subject to academic freedom, that they are open to debate and change and expansion over time. Uh, and it's not an easy thing and, and decisions will not always be correct. But um, my inclination as an advocate of academic freedom is to, is to I'd rather err toward being too inclusive than too exclusive. Um, but I do understand that some things, it may be appropriate to say, no, that doesn't fit into right. what we are trying to do. Right, right. Um, so the second core component of academic freedom is freedom in the classroom. Um, critics uh, worry that this is sometimes read to mean freedom of instructors to say whatever they want in the classroom um, or to indoctrinate students um, in the classroom. Um, how should we understand the freedom to teach? Well, I, I based, I, I wrote a bunch of, this chapter, I based the whole first half of the chapter on one AAUP committee A report, which predates my uh, presence on the committee called Freedom in the Classroom, 
which I still think is, is excellent. It was written in response to then a conservative critique of, uh, of liberal educators as somehow indoctrinating students or creating a hostile learning environment. But actually, I think it's equally applicable to some of the criticisms we've gotten from people who more associated with the left, particular uh, around issues of race and gender in particular in the classroom. Uh, and I think the first thing to make clear from that report is faculty members do not have the freedom to say whatever they want in class. First and foremost, they have to treat, teach their subject matter. You know, when I first got involved in committee A, Jordan Curlin, now deceased, was who had worked in the AUP Department of Academic Freedom for over 50 years, told me a story and he got a call from a faculty member one year who said, this is outrageous. He's an English faculty member in the English department. He says, they won't let me teach Jack Kerouac. So he thought, oh, controversial you know, writer, blah, 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 this could be. So he, but of course he does due diligence. He calls, I can't remember what his department chair or the dean, he calls and he says, oh, you say, the guy says, won't let him teach Jack Kerouac. And the guy says, hold on. Did he tell you it's a course on 17th century British literature? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, arguably, you could use an excerpt from Jack Kerouac in contrast. You could use it, but that wasn't the way he was trying to do it. He wanted to teach what he wanted to teach. Well, right. you just can't do that. You just don't have the freedom to do that. You have to teach what the subject matter is about. So the first thing is, is the 1940 statement talks about uh, you are not free to enter controversial material that is irrelevant to the course. And the 1970 interpretive comments that clarified the position that controversy is not really the thing, it's irrelevance that's the issue. You know, what is relevant to a class? So that's one thing. Two, second thing is teaching isn't indoctrination and it shouldn't be, but the question is what is indoctrination? You know, is it indoctrination? for a biology professor to teach the theory of evolution, including to a student, a deeply devout Christian who believes the earth was created in, in, in six days. Right. You know, just a thousand or 6,000 years ago, I think that is the position. Um, and it's not indoctrination. Now you cannot compel and should not compel that student to change his or her mind. And the appropriate response is look, you can believe that, but that is not what biologists believe. And this is a course in biology. And therefore, your responsibility is to learn what biologists think, even if you don't agree with biologists. And you could actually, I mean, in theory, I don't think very many people would do it, but you could actually become a PhD in biology and still not believe. Right whatever, that, that would be a little crazy in my mind, but that's, you know, technically possible. So it, it's not indoctrination for that person, you know, to say if they, you know, no, you have to get that right on the test. You know, I'm not indoctrinating you. Indo it's not indoctrination to present principles that are widely accepted in a discipline. Second, it's not indoctrination to present principles that are controversial in the discipline. So long as you present them as such. You don't have to. You don't have to say this is. Con you know, this is my point of view. Not everybody in the field agrees with it. You're not obligation to, obligated to tell what all the other people think. But it, you and you are obligated to allow the students to understand that I can debate this with the professor. I do not. I have the right to challenge it. 
secondly, around hostile, uh, hostile environment in the classroom. A faculty member does not have the right in the classroom to disparage or otherwise um, make uncomfortable a student simply because of who or what the student is. You know, their gender, their sexual orientation, their race, their political attitudes, be they far left, far right, or far center. Um, but the faculty member is entitled to disparage, in a certain sense, ideas that a student may hold. And so if a student stands up and says, I don't think you're right, Professor so-and-so, this is what I think, and it's wrong, it's according to that discipline, the professor has not only the right, but the obligation to say, with all due respect, you're wrong. And here's why I believe you're wrong. The professor is not entitled, I think, under academic freedom, and most professors would not do this, to, to simply sit and say, you're an idiot. You know, first of all, it's not going to work anyway. It's just going to make you, you know. But it, you know, and that's the distinction I would uh, I would make. Yeah. So um, um, I wonder if we can flesh that out um, some more because, of course, this is a point of particular tension these days of thinking about her uh, harassment policies and how to um, uh, design them in universities, how to apply them um, in university uh, uh, context. Um, it, it's early in the AUP's history. Um, uh, it was often the case that students would complain uh, to administrators and call on faculty be fired because they uh, felt offended or demeaned um, by things an instructor might have said uh, in the classroom. Now students are more likely to reach for the language of harassment policies and try to leverage harassment policies uh, when they call for professors to be punished for things that they say in the classroom. Um, how should we think about situating uh, policies designed to prevent harassment on the one hand and policies designed for to protect academic freedom on the other hand, how should these two things uh, live together? Well, I, I think there will always be a bit of a tension, but I, uh, I think what I just got up before the example of, of, of you can yeah. say you're wrong, you can't say you're an idiot, you know, is, uh, is, is the case. And um, the problem is, is where, Harassment is where, where free expression is considered mm -hmm. as harassment. And this is where I, I'm, I'm very troubled a lot of times by the language of harm. Right. You know, that the students were harmed by these ideas. And I, 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 don't, I, I don't find that compelling. Um, give me, let me give you an example. Uh, my own campus. Uh, recently, there was a faculty member. Now, he, he was in the end stages of an early retirement program teaching part-time, so it, it became a moot issue very quickly. But he was an economics professor, and he was supposed to be teaching economics. And instead, he had become an advocate of something called race realism. He argued that IQ tests proved that white people were intellectually superior to people of color. It's a frankly, a crackpot theory. And he'd been doing it for a while without anybody apparently knowing. I don't know what was going on. It's a failure of, of collective responsibility of the faculty, if you ask me. But uh, eventually it came out and there were demands, you know, for him to be removed, etc. cetera. Uh, as I said, it became moot rather quickly. But um, I, I thought, you know, the demands were actually as far from what I knew of the case, or I wasn't involved in, in, sure. 
correctly, it, were pretty justified, but not because they harmed the students, but because it was irrelevant mm-hmm. to economics and not accepted by any serious scholarly discipline and had no pedagogical purpose. It was a, an attempt of this guy to foist his views on another topic on his students. That's what was wrong, not the harm. It was not harassing of the students. Mm-hmm. There's another case uh, also at Louisiana State, uh, the case of Teresa Buchanan, an education professor who used what has been called salty language and sexual references in her teaching. And some of her students were offended. And perhaps it was ill-advised in her part, Um, but what she was brought up on charges for was not even poor teaching. It was sexual harassment, Uh that she was sexually harassing people by doing this. Well, it wasn't sexual harassment. It may have been poor teaching. I don't know. It may have been something that, 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 I don't think she was eventually, she was fired, Um, but uh, it may have been something certainly that, that she could have been disciplined in some lesser way for, I don't know. Uh, but it certainly wasn't sexual harassment. You know, it was, you know, it was, well, it was, it was language. It was, you know, it was whatever it was. Right. Uh, a similar case at uh, the University of Colorado, uh, where the instructor um, for decades taught a course on um a deviance in American society. Mm-hmm. One of her teaching things, which was up to this point extremely popular, is she had a unit on sex workers, uh, porn film stars, everything from so-called street walkers to high-end escorts, etc. And she had some of her graduate assistants volunteer to play the parts in a little skit of these different uh-huh. people to get their point of view. Right. One day from the sexual harassment office, people show up in the class. There has not been a formal complaint, but there have been rumors that, oh, she's doing this. And eventually, and they demand that she retire. Right. They say, you can't teach this anymore. It's a terrible thing. Her name's Patty Adler, by the way. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is who came to her defense? The students. Yeah. The students came to her defense. But while I tell the story, do I tell the story in the book? I can't remember. I told it somewhere. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, she's actually, there's a book coming out that includes a, a number of essays on academic freedom, but she has an essay about the experience. But, uh, uh, you know, this was, and, and this was intellectually stifling of this class. Right. Whether in today's world, as opposed to even 15 yeah. years ago, this is a good teaching technique. I can't say, I don't know. You know, one of the reasons I retired is I'm getting old, I'm a little losing touch with the students. Right. But it was not harassment. So, so that example um, uh, raises this question that goes to, to something you said earlier as well, which is thinking about sort of, again, what counts as sort of jury of your peers. And so a sort of core component of academic freedom and how we think about the, the boundaries and, and assessment of it 
is partially um, allowing the faculty to make a lot of judgments about uh, what kind of materials, for example, is irrelevant to a class. And so if we think that um, uh, a, a, an English professor is teaching the wrong text uh, in the particular class they're teaching, uh, partially we want to ask other English professors whether this is uh, appropriate for this, for this mm -hmm. kind of class. One thing about the harassment context um, on the other hand, is, is a lot of times the people making the judgments, the, is this speech you engaged in in this class uh, harassment or not, or not other faculty, but instead are going to be administrators of some sort are going to be lawyers and, and others. Um, is there a role for faculty to weigh in on, on some of those questions? So you, so you firmly say in some of these examples, well, that's not harassment. That may be bad teaching, but it's something else um, that's occurring. Uh, whereas if you ask um, somebody from, the, um, uh, some, from some relevant office in the university, whether the general counsel's office or, or something else, um, they may have a different answer to that. Um, uh, so uh, who, who ought to be um, involved in making those kinds of determinations? Well, I, I think ultimately it should be the faculty. Mm. Uh, faculty should be involved, and it should ultimately, these are educational decisions. Um, now, I, it, it, faculty should even be involved if it's not in the classroom. I mean, uh -huh. like a, a faculty member who engages in sexual harassment of, say, a colleague, right. you know, or a, or a graduate student who he's not teaching, it's just, you know, uh, et cetera. I, I think faculty should be involved there, but I, there, yes, there needs to be a, an apparatus for investigation, mm -hmm. et cetera, and, and I understand that. But 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 if we limit ourselves for the moment to the classroom, yeah, uh, that I, I think it, it's ultimately should be a faculty decision. Now that said, we are limited by by legislation. I think some of the Title IX guidelines. I mean, we we have we issued a, a lot of lengthy report the AUP that uh, I'm actually credited as one of the authors, but I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's really it was five women faculty members who I I, I was happy. It was under the auspices of my committee and another committee, so I got you get authorship by courtesy. <laughs> I, I got but um, the uh, the wonderful report on Title IX on its history and the uses and abuses of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we've had problems, frankly, with, 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 with we've had problems with the way the Obama administration did Title IX. We've had problems with the way the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos did Title IX. Each corrected the, some of the mistakes of the other, but it was it's still problematic. And I think ultimately it's, the faculty needs to be more involved. And, and this is a problem, and not just around these harassment issues, of the sort of absorption of things that were that, that historically and philosophically should be the in the purview of the faculty being taken over more and more by the, um, I like to call it the metastasizing uh, bureaucracy of the university. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and it's very concerning. Um, and you mentioned general counsels, boy, <laughs> the office of the general counsel, you know, they're lawyers and, and they're, their role is sometimes to, to, to protect the, well, you know, I'm going to protect you from from the possibility of of, of danger. So you know, it's like uh, it, it's not what can you do. It's you know, let's limit everything you do so that nobody could possibly say you can't. Right. Well, yeah, certainly some tensions between the sort of risk averse nature of yeah. uh, some university administrators and, and uh, lawyers advising them and. Uh, 
some of what we would hope to see on a university campus and what faculty um, engage in. Fa faculty are not always the most risk averse uh, when they, <laughs> as these things go. Um, so I do want to turn to the um, uh, third uh, component because it's particularly, especially because it's particularly prominent uh, in uh, recent years um, of academic freedom. That's the protection of what gets characterized as intramural um, and extramural speech uh, by faculty. Um, so again, can we start just by um, explaining what intramural and extramural speech are? Sure. Well, the, the 1940 statement says that faculty free to speak as when they speak as citizens should be protected. And, and we've come to interpret that as, as first protecting extramural speech, literally speech outside the walls of the institution, but it's really not the physical walls. It's outside the boundaries of research and teaching. Um, uh, but also as citizens of the university, intramural speech, meaning speech in the university, not on one's discipline, but on the governance of the institution. Uh, and this is the area I think where there's the greatest resemblance to individual free speech. And here I think that the real question is why? Yeah. You know, why should faculty get this special privilege that when they speak as citizens and they say things that are controversial or even frankly crackpot or stupid, right. um, they should be protected in their job. Whereas an ordinary person, you know, the heck, a barista at Starbucks right. goes on Facebook and says, you know, uh, some horribly racist thing or some crazy, uh, uh, you know, thing, whatever. And, and somebody starts picketing, people start picketing outside that Starbucks saying, you apply this. Starbucks has every right to say, you're causing, a, we're losing business because of you. Goodbye, right. you're fired. Right. Why can't universities do it with professors? And I think fundamentally the basic reason is, as, as you put it, and well, first Robert Post and yeah. uh, Matt Finken said it well in their book for uh, tenure, uh, for the common good. Uh, you said it very well in an article you wrote in the AUP magazine, Academe, uh, which is it, it's a prophylactic protection. If we can't protect people in their speech as citizens, how free will they feel to speak in the classroom and in research? You know, and so ultimately, uh, the right, right of, of, of extramural speech in particular mm -hmm. is, there, is there as a prophylactic. And it's there to basically say, you know, look, you know, uh, and, and, and by the way, the there was an interesting debate. I talk about this in the book. In the early years of the AUP, the AUP's second, um, second president, John Henry Wigmore from Northwestern, a law professor, analogized the role of faculty with judges. He said judges are appointed and judgments that they make in their capacity as judges are protected. They, they write a dumb opinion, it gets overturned, but they don't get fired, right? Uh, but when they speak outside of their, they're, they're not necessarily protected. Uh, well, uh, Arthur Lovejoy, one of the main lights of the early AUP uh, philosopher said, no, I disagree. He says they have to be protected even when they're speaking outside their discipline. Why? Because you could, you could use some crazy thing they say outside their discipline to go at them in their discipline. And I can think of numerous examples. I mean, the, the most famous one I often use, of course, is Arthur Butts at, the Nor at Northwestern University, an electrical engineering professor who's also one of the country's premier Holocaust deniers. Uh, he published his book on Holocaust denial 
uh, right after he got tenure in electrical engineering. And there have been calls periodically to fire him, but he's never talked about it in the classroom. It's irrelevant to whether he knows anything about electrical engineering or not. You know, now, if he had been in my field, which is 19th and 20th century European history, right. that would be different. It would be relevant. And that goes to a standard that the AUP has tried to develop over the years, what we call the fitness standard, that extramural speech can only be relevant if it goes directly to the fitness of the person to conduct research or teach. And then we go on to say, it's very rare for an extramural statement to be relevant to fitness. Moreover, even where it is, it must be taken in the overall context mm -hmm. of the person's work. Uh, and so this is, and of course, these are some of the most controversial things. This is what was at issue in the right. slider case, for yeah. example. So now intramural expression is a little different. Is uh, the, um, the founders of the AUP famously said that uh, faculty members were the appointees of the trustees, but in no meaningful sense, they're employees. Well, in point of fact, as we know, we are employees right. uh, and it's an employment relationship. But what, what is the essence behind that? which is that our role is not like an ordinary employee to be subordinate to whomever our supervisor is, et cetera. It is to participate in the governance of the university insofar as, you know, as our expertise as teachers and research, researchers goes here. So we even, I think faculty members should even have a voice in planning new buildings on campus or in, uh, uh, in other things like that, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Right. You know, uh, but in, when it comes to curriculum, when it comes to faculty status, when it comes to research and teaching, the faculty's voice must be primary. And in order for the faculty's voice to be primary, the faculty must have the freedom to speak among themselves and to the institution's leadership about the institution's policies, including when sometimes they get overheated, et cetera. There was a, yeah. you know. Uh, the, by the way, one of the most famous cases is a case I'm very fond of, uh, of reading about it from the early 1930s at Rollins College, which at the time was one of the most progressive institutions in the United States. It was an alternate college, but the man who ran it ran it like a dictatorship. Right. And the faculty eventually rebelled against some of it under the leadership of a classicist. I can't remember his name right now, but uh, who, who was uh, quite prominent at the time and who also apparently every now and then, you know, couched his criticism of the president in rather undiplomatic language. Uh, and the AUP ended up investigating Arthur Lovejoy led the investigation, wrote the report. And, and he basically says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, some, you know, this was just he was like he was he was all hot-headed at the time right but they basically said look you know academic freedom is not just the freedom to teach crazy you know controversial things which Rollins College did this is but it's also the right to be controversial when it comes to education yeah which of course the intramural speech is um you know it comes and goes as how much of an issue it is but lately it's been certainly an issue around uh some of the pandemic response um uh, as well as financial difficulties universities find themselves in and we we see a return of uh university presidents wanting to crack down on internal dissent and, and criticism of the kind of policies they've adopted um to to run the university 
No, very much so. This, this special re uh, report that I was part of writing on COVID-19 academic governance, we, 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 we focused on some particularly egregious examples, but they were only examples. Uh, and, and I must say that actually, uh, just talking the other day with the executive director of the AOP, and she was, she was pointing out that, that these efforts to, to just run roughshod over faculty and, you know, and not just by the administrations, by boards of governors, by legislatures, these sort of anti-mask anti mandates, anti-vaccine you know, mandates, et cetera, have led to a great resurgence of organizing of AUP chapters at uh, quite a few campuses, uh, particularly in the South and the and, uh, Midwest. Right, right. Um, uh, so I want to pick up on, on something you just raised while ago about extramural speech in particular and thinking about this sort of fitness requirement and the way of conceptualizing where the boundaries of extramural speech are. And, and the, uh, the way that's often raised, is, 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 as you mentioned, it was um, um, uh, fitness to subject matter expertise. And so if you say something in public, um, say on your Twitter feed uh, or, or the like um, uh, that calls into question your competence um, in your uh, particular discipline. Um, uh, that, that goes to these fitness issues. And, and as you say, you want to though uh, emphasize uh, that we ought to be thinking not just about what did you say on your social media feed, uh, but put this into a larger context of, of uh, your work more generally. But we might also think about a different dimension of fitness, which, which has also been a source of conflict and we often don't use the language of fitness to talk about it, but I think it's it sort of um, uh, gets raised in a similar way, which is to sort of say um, uh, demeanor or character um, and its relationship to um, how people act as as instructors. Um, so the the 1940 statement. Um, not only calls for protection of extramural speech, but also urges professors to be responsible and how they exercise um, that right of free speech when speaking as a citizen. I, I frequently hear people say that professors should have a right to free speech, um, but only if they're civil or responsible um, if they engage in that speech. Um, and we might think that that kind of incivility um, also goes to a kind of fitness that um, if, if somebody like, well, like Stephen Salida, for example, in his uh, social media feed uh, is particularly inflammatory and provocative uh, in that kind of extramural speech, does that in any way go to his fitness as a teacher? Um, and some of his critics in that context said it did, that, that we ought to be taking that into account uh, when we uh, think about uh, whether somebody like that belongs in the classroom. So what's wrong with these kinds of civility requirements? What's wrong with thinking about um, that kind of question of how provocative is this person um, uh, in, in these other contexts? Um, uh, and does that go uh, reasonably go uh, to some kind of assessment about um, how professional are they and whether or not um, a university ought to have them in the classroom uh, dealing with students? Well, let me start by this, this is a good question. It's a big question. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, first of all, by saying that that our, my understanding, I think the AUP's understanding of fitness has nothing to do with the notion that you often hear from, from administrators and, and often, Frank, too often from faculty members of, well, he or she is not a good fit. <laughs> yes, know? right. Um, no, that's not what we mean. <laughs> fitness is, is, is the fitness. Do you want to say something, though, about what actually, so, so academics, this is language they use all the time. And so you often hear in academia, uh, somebody's not a good fit. But, but for those who are outside of academia, this may be less familiar. So, so what do people mean when they say, well, well, uh, well, is this person well, a good fit? The best case scenario is a good fit is like, you know, we're looking for somebody 
in the history department who, who can remedy the fact that we have nobody who knows anything about Russia. Right. And this candidate is a very qualified guy, but he really is, especially is really in Poland. Right. You know, right. that's not a good fit for our position. Okay, that's maybe, but more often, sadly, it's not a good fit is like they, the person's come to campus, given a presentation, and people don't, frankly, people don't like them. Right, right. You know, they, they say, oh, I'm not comfortable with that guy. I don't know, you know, or, right. you know, too, or maybe it's the person's politics, too too conservative, too, too radical, too leftist, whatever, you know, and, and they, these are not, or, or, or the other language, of course, as you well know, that is often used is collegiality, you know, yeah. that they're not really collegial. Well, collegiality, that should be a criterion judging in, in the sense of, do you do your job? Do, do you take up your share of the responsibilities, the collegial collective responsibilities of the department? It doesn't mean, do you get along with everybody? You know, it would be nice, but, you know, not, not everybody is that, that, that way. Um, but having, a, having said that, let me say that the interesting thing is those exhortations in the 1940 statement, uh, the initial draft of that document that was done had a final sentence in that that basically said this would be up to uh, what's the line? I, oh God, I, it's in my book. I can't remember it right now, but it's basically would have made these things, you know, exhortations to good behavior. It would have basically said this is, you know, uh, it, it's it, it's not up open to discipline. It's this, it will be the, you know, if you if you're not doing this, it would be the, the sort of, you know, consensus of the profession or people would would say naughty, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that language, which I wish I could remember it exactly, and I, I could go through the, the book, but it would take a couple of time, um, that uh, that, la that language was completely unacceptable to the Association of American Colleges. And so they modified it, and they added a little footnote at the time that said, but, you know, if, if the AUP thinks that, 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 that these exhortations are being misused, we could, they, they can file a uh, do an investigation. And ever since then, to be honest, and this goes to the point I was making a, a very much earlier in our conversation about that, that 1940 statement being a compromise, oh, right. uh, the AUP has basically sought to, as much as possible, whittle away till we get back to the notion that these really are just exhortations to good behavior. And that's mainly the way we look at those, those things. Now, good behavior is not inappropriate. It's not, I mean, and Looking at the Salida case, I think that exhortation to say in the overall context of their scholarly career, yes, if if there were evidence that Stephen Salida acted in the classroom like he did in those tweets, I think that could be a reason to say this is not an appropriate person to be teaching our students. But the fact is that Salida was not fresh out of graduate school where you, the only evidence you have is like, look, how is he gonna be in the classroom? He had been in the classroom for many years. He had a teaching record. They had examined it. And every single account had said that he is a good teacher. Students like him. He's respectful of students, including those who disagree with him. So that was irrelevant in that, in, in that case. Um, so uh, 
in the Salida case, it was interesting because the chancellor at the time, who by the way was a, a uh, in the physical sciences, she knew nothing about these areas of the social and sciences, humanities. She said uh, that she said that um, civility is is an equal criterion to everything else. And all our favorite have to be civil. And, and no, civility is not a criterion, right. you know, in all behavior. And and she, oh, and she said those who who she and she specifically said it isn't his ideas; it's the way he portrays them. Yeah. It's the way he says them. And she goes, uh, she goes. And there's no room at the University of Illinois for ideas that disrespect people. Well, I'm sorry, there, there may be no room for disrespectful actions of people, but ideas, you know, so we, um, you know, so I think that's really what uh, this is about. And it, it can be a hard road to hoe. And, you know, let me tell you, there's more than a few times when I was chair of committee A, and I know over the history of the AUP, where we've had to sit there and go, oh, my God, we're going to have to defend this person, you know, because we feel that this is not really great professional behavior. Right. Um, but you do, because the effect on others is so much more important. And so uh, and this goes to, for example, one of the, the main areas right now of extramural speech, as you know, is, of course, yeah, social right. media, right. where one stupid little statement can be taken out of context and made a, a big thing. And I, I wrote it in, in my earlier book. I had a whole chapter called Can I Tweet That? And I always like to joke that I'd like to see it accompanied by somebody else writing a chapter that said, should I tweet that? Yeah. Because the can I is really about should I will I have the right to tweet it? And yes. But there are some times you want to say think before you do it it's not a very smart thing to be saying you know right. it's going to get you in trouble without telling the person you know cave in be abandon your ideas because you're going to be silenced right right um uh so so we are going a little long but it's a big fascinating topic and i went to uh, uh explore it some um but i did want to uh fulfill my promise of coming back to shared governance um so maybe we should wrap up uh with that um so um you know as we've sort of touched on at various points there's there's certainly an ongoing point of tension between professors and administrators on that tradition in universities there's a lot of pressure on shared governance um, uh, right now, um, although there has been now for, for many years. Um, so um, uh, can you say a little bit about, then about sort of what is shared governance? Um, how should we think about this concept? Um, and what, if anything, do you think the relationship is between shared governance and academic freedom? Is shared governance really a, a separate question about um, how universities ought to operate that faculty also have an interest in? Um, or are there actually implications uh, for those kinds of uh, policies and practices for uh, academic freedom itself? Well, I, I think it's impossible to enforce academic freedom if you don't have shared governance. Um, so the two are closely dependent. Um, and it's impossible to have a decent system of shared governance if people aren't free to speak mm -hmm. their minds and do it. Um, I think shared governance has been under tension from two different directions in my experience. The main pressure and danger to my mind, uh, in, especially in recent years, has been from the trustee administration side and in public universities, often from legislators and, uh, and politicians. Uh, and uh, the desire to run roughshod over the faculty's rights. And let, let me 
step back for a moment before I continue with this to say that this faculty's role in shared governance is not just to be there all the time. It, and we're not just one stakeholder. I hate the, the language of stakeholders that we're just one among many. No, it's when it comes to the faculty's areas of expertise in research and teaching, the faculty should have the principal voice. And as the 1966 Statement on Government of Colleges and Universities, a tremendous, terrific document, formulated again as a compromise jointly by the AUP, the AACU, and the Association of Governing Boards. Um, that document points out that in those areas, the faculty should have the primary voice and their recommendations should only be rejected rarely and with clear reasons presented to the faculty. That's the principle. And the biggest danger has been running roughshod over that, that you know, administrations do things that affect the classroom, that affect research without listening to what the faculty wants. And these are the kind of things we, we you know, we, 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 we have investigated in several cases. Um, on the other hand, another danger to shared government are faculty governance bodies that are too subservient to administrations. Yeah. I really gained maturity as a faculty advocate leaders in my experiences. I, had, I did three separate one-year terms as chair of the Academic Senate on my campus, was on its executive committee for 15 years. I spent nine years on the Cal State System Academic Senate. And I learned, I thought there were two kinds of mistakes academic senates make. One is they just stand up and go, no, all the time and issue powerful statements of principle that nobody listens to. Yeah. But the bigger danger was that in trying to work with the administration, they basically let the administration lead them, mm -hmm. including in areas where they should be leading the administration. Uh, and I think there's less of that right now because I think we've seen over the past, certainly the past decade or so, increasing pressure on faculties and a growing sense that the faculty is losing its power over the university uh, through various ways. Um, whether we will be able to regain it is an open question, uh, but we'll never will if we don't try. Uh, and so that's why I got involved in the AUP. And that's why I've been writing these books. Right, right. Uh, so, so thank you, Hank. I really appreciate this. It's been a great uh, conversation. Uh, it allowed us to uh, talk about a, um, a lot of important issues um, associated with academic freedom. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, listeners can find out more about the AAUP at their website, um, www.aup.org. Uh, which includes links to their annual publication, The Journal of Academic Freedom. Hank Kreischmann's uh, new book, Understanding Academic Freedom, is now available for purchase, and it provides a great starting point for thinking about academic freedom issues uh, today. Uh, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom podcast through your favorite platform so that you don't miss an episode, and rate us on iTunes, which will help others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Until next time, thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. 
Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.